Just stop it. The run of the mill, cheesy, humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women who go through hell to achieve their goals. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. Sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. This is Disruption Interruption. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ, and we're here today to talk to someone who has steered his horse off the lame's tired path of the status quo. Today's disruptor's primary role is head of product. He works on the high-level user experience and tech requirements with product and engineering teams. He is obsessed with user experience. And today, user experience rules the world. Why? If your user experience sucks, then you are quickly passed over. Managing events, processing payments, user experience is king. And as our guest said, software shouldn't require an expert to run it. Coming to us live from New York, New York, CEO of Blackthorn, Chris Betterspiel. What an intro. It's amazing. I swear I didn't pay you to say that. Good morning. Hey, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> there was nice so much here. we could have said about you, especially the name <laughs> of your company. It's almost like a black ops company, right? Blackthorn. It's definitely unique. Yeah. People will remember it. It's a very weird connotation. So some people, they love it. Other people, they're like, oh, it sounds really dark, but it is different. So I think people tend to remember it. Yeah, I absolutely love it. So, okay, Chris, so we're going to get into user experience, but before we do, I want you to tell me what is the main ingredient for disruption? The, there's a few. The, the overriding one is that enterprise apps are notoriously hard to use. If you've ever used Salesforce, it's impossible to use without training. It's the biggest, most successful platform ever. It's more flexible and has more features than anything, but you can't just like sit in front of it and start using it. And so Salesforce invented Trailhead to teach people how to use it. And then if you think about installing any app on it, it's incrementally harder. So if you had take a small startup that has limited people to build something, there's only so much you can focus on to make it easier. So usually these apps take hours and hours and hours or days or weeks to be able to use. So the, the primary goal of our company is to be live within the app within I don't know, minutes of installing it. So our payments app takes 15 minutes after install to be able to process a live payment. And then our events app takes a little bit longer because you have to you know, actually create an event. So all in, it's maybe a half hour from install to being able to go live with a paid event. And that kind of timeline is unheard of in the Salesforce ecosystem for you know, installing apps. It usually takes hours or days or weeks. So yeah, you're right. And so the, so what, so the main ingredient, I guess the power is in the speed. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird space because our competitors outside of Salesforce have significantly more features. They have humongous funding. They, they really do a lot, but people that are Salesforce admins, the ones that are doing the clicks and configuration to set up the environments, they really want what they call a native application because it allows you to use Salesforce's power on the apps. You can set up automated flows or set up what they call apex triggers. You can write code around it. The permissions do different things. 
So it allows our applications and native apps to scale within the Salesforce environment in a way that these platforms outside of Salesforce can't do. Yeah. It, it, so it is speed. So, you know, you're just like a fanatic about user experience, right? And what you're talking about today is user experience. I mean, even in your life, like you look at everything from a user experience, you know, point of view, right? Yeah. It's, it, it, it's gone a bit far sometimes. I've had to learn how to be better in relationships to not be so particular about refining certain things. So, you know, at home, I've had to let certain things go. But in terms of architecting our apps, when I look at uh, font not being exact or the lead word and the second word would be capitalized and then lowercase. And I, I tell the team, look, this isn't something you would find with Apple or Tesla. It's me being particular. But if we have the ability to make this little refinement, then why not? Yeah. Why not? Well, tell me about the status quo of user experience today, especially with Salesforce. You mentioned it, right? But we're talking here about managing events, which is huge and managing payments, which is even bigger, right? Um, yep. And user experience has just exploded. Like really, honestly, if your user experience sucks, it's going to be harder and harder to increase market share, right? Because mm -hmm. we're just, consumers are just not putting up with it anymore. Even enterprise consumers, right? Mm -hmm. Paint the picture for me of the status quo. Everybody has a phone. The apps on your phone are really easy. You don't have to go through a training to use uh, Facebook or WhatsApp or Instagram or you know, any kind of social, anything. People now want their business apps to operate and feel like their consumer apps. So the, the problem is it's really hard is you'll get these requests for proposals, these RFPs where the deals are 50K plus, like it behooves you to, to go after them, but you can't win them unless you check the box. There is no single RFP that will award you the RFP based upon how good the app feels. But after you have someone using the app and when you go to do marketing, and if you get someone outside of this realm, they want a really good feeling app that's quick to use and powerful, but you can't win the RFP unless you check the box. So it's a very hard balance in doing enterprise applications when you want to go after these two. So sometimes applications will go after this PLG, product-led growth uh, style of using the app, which is, to me, it more or less means self-service. You can get going in the app without asking anyone anything. You can sign up and be ready to go. That's a focus on the user experience. Then there's these applications that are enormous, which is why these mega companies like Capgemini exist to be able to have these multi-million dollar projects to implement something that checks all the boxes of an RFP. So when we're building an app, we tend to focus on the domain layer experience first, which more or less helps us check the box in our code. And then we do the UX as a secondary piece that comes on top of it, because we have to make sure we're getting revenue first from these. With a business app, it's hard to rely on just the, the consumer-based experience. Slack was massively successful in doing this. They There's no type of code you have to write with Slack. Someone just starts using it and they can chat. But as soon as something needs to live inside of your core database. It can't just be UX. It actually has to really do a lot of things. If you look at Stripe, they started their company with no real dashboard capabilities. Their app on their, their what you see is what you get point and click dashboard was terrible. You could make a payment method and do a charge. It did almost nothing. They focused by 
the user experience for developers, which is why that they were so successful because all the apps before that were so hard. They focused on speed to market for developers, but no focus on UX. So they effectively checked the box of the RFP in a product-led growth style way, but for developers. What came out of that was the same thing that's happening to us is that now that all of the hardcore users are on the applications, they now want them to be easier. So Stripe's put massive investments into their dashboards where we'll not, we're now putting massive investments into our wizards to be able to set up the event and to create your events, or we're building a commerce now to, to build your store and so forth. So we have this, it's, it's like a backwards approach, it seems mm -hmm. like in the industry. And has it behooved the industry until now to do it that way? Have they done it that way because they just never have thought first about user experience and now it's they're doing it backwards or you know what's been the reasoning for that that you can figure out i think if you think about amazon this is not what bezos said in particular but it was something like i love human behavior because someone always wants more if you think about when you used to buy something you had to go out to a store and you had to shop and to bring it home and it was exhausting and then people started buying stuff online and it would take a, a week or two for it to ship to you. And then Prime came out and there was two-day shipping and then there was one-day shipping. And then there's, there's comedians who now talk about wanting a product immediately. There, there's just a sliding scale of what people expect. You know, if, if we all have cars and electronics now, if everybody went back to the year 1900, it wasn't too long ago, everybody would... If you like, where did everything go? So as soon as an application came out, if you look at early PC apps, it was just DOS prompts. And you would put in this disk and it would take a long time to load. And someone came out with a smaller disk and that thing was faster to load. And each time there, there is an incremental advance, people want something more. So the old Oracle databases, they didn't look very good. They were hard to use. Benioff comes along and makes this online based one with a better looking UI and people wanted to use their browser. And it's just has notched up since then. And it's just this pattern that just keeps going. It's unstoppable now. And with the advent of iPhones, everyone just expects this experience. That's amazing. Yeah, they do. We really do. We are spoiled. So this is sort of a natural progression of things, right? Um, but this user experience, right? And you have ERP systems that are just very cumbersome, right? To figure mm -hmm. out what's the biggest challenge of flipping it that black porn has run into? Uh, Is it just adoption? People are so used to the old way. Is it the RFP process really needs to be changed? The users are different. Uh, people that aren't used. I, I used to play around with Linux and Unix servers when I was, younger no idea why but i used to and i was just used to using the keyboard and then salesforce came out and i was used to using their setup wizard and it always looked bad until they released the lightning ui and that looks great and the the difference now though is that with with bigger user bases you have this the stages of product adoption there's the early adopters and there's flipping all the way forward, you have these late adopters. And the late adopters are usually not the ones that are the most, as they say, tech savvy. 
which I don't really like that term because it generally means the product is just too hard for early people to use. Uh, I'm sorry, for, for later people to be able to use. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that the biggest problem is that we, we now get people that are coming off of Eventbrite that you can create an event by clicking a few buttons. And then all of a sudden you get this 25 billion a year platform that doesn't focus on user experience. It's pretty now, but it, it's, you can't just start using it. You need to do training. They're expecting something that needs no training. It, you can't learn how to build flows with emails and different permissions and you just, you don't want to do it. You want to install the app and you want to start using it so that the biggest problem that we have is finding out specifically what they want to use. So early on, we didn't have a product team. I don't function initially from the concept of ease of use from the mind of someone who's not like behind the, the, the curtain of this thing. So we've hired a bunch of UX uh, product-based teams and they're doing customer interviews to find out what really works now so that we've, we're scrapping our existing event wizard and creating a new one, focusing on what it is that they want with a combination of what we think they want. Like Steve Jobs, no one said, I want no keyboard. I want to use a screen. But so there's something there about listening to what people want and then going with our intuition. So the hardest thing is mixing our domain logic. The app works without a wizard to putting a wizard on top of it that does things with speed because Salesforce as a database is a bit slow. And then having functions that guide a user. There's no guide within Salesforce. It's a relational database. You have to click accounts and then contacts and then opportunities and no one really knows to do that. So we're trying to find a way to, to guide someone through that process. I feel like that's the, the same way with other uh, softwares like Salesforce. Mm-hmm. It's not intuitive. It's um, not. If you look at SAP, it's, it's very hard to use. If you use NetSuite or any of these, they, they take a long time to learn. They're very popular because the functions are amazing. They take forever to rebuild, but they take a lot of training and they they don't have to. So the, the next iteration of all of these is about getting someone up to speed quickly. Like if you look at Notion, they created a database without having to write any code or really learning much. If you do a training of Notion for 10 minutes, you effectively learn the whole app. And that's one of the fastest growing apps ever. Yeah. You know, I, I interviewed another disruptor and he feels that software is leading the world. And, you know, then, you know, you have stages, you software makes things better and then you make the software better. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yeah. But you know, here you bringing up speed again, right? So you have, so you have this innovation. Tell me more about it. Like you've mentioned events, you've mentioned payments, right? I mean, every company needs payments, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's pretty ubiquitous. Yeah, we just bought a messaging app because everyone's doing text messaging now. And with everyone going remote, you can't do as much in person. So people need to sell stuff online. So we're building a commerce app and every company needs all of these things combined. We're just providing this gap that Salesforce isn't providing so people can buy this platform and layer on these these add-ons to it. Yeah. And so so tell me a bit more about the innovation and tell me why events right? Is that a, mm-hmm. even a growing, it's growing even more since COVID, right? Yeah. It's a, uh, if you look at Hopin, they're one of the fastest growing companies by revenue. They went from zero to 20 million ARR in two years, focusing on live event, on virtual events. And we have something coming out in that space a bit later this year. 
Uh, ours will be a bit different because all of your data is going to be in Salesforce. You'll see if someone has registered for a session and then you'll be able to, to cater your sale and your sales conversations to who they talk to at the event and what sessions they went to. So that's, that's a little bit different, right? But in terms of, of speed, which you, which you were noting, if you look at uh, TikTok and the rise of Vine, no idea why they shut that down, they, pe people want their information immediately. Like when you have a five second ad before a YouTube video starts, it sucks. No one wants to wait five seconds. They want their application to work immediately. That's not how Salesforce works. So we've had to find ways to save information in local memory before committing it to the database because it just takes a long time. And there's just this big focus on speed. And I've just, I didn't write down the original question. I just heard the speed piece, but what, what was the original question that you asked? I don't remember. I'm, I went on this, so this I'm like, I'm thinking ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, your, your innovation is obviously focusing on speed right? Payments, events. I think you did answer. Oh, why events you said. Yeah. But it's this layer on top of Salesforce, right? Mm -hmm. um, is that something that is just part and parcel that's going to be part of Salesforce's model to have these layers over this? Are they ever going to make their system more user experience, better speed? Yeah, they... With the creation of the Lightning UI, the user experience did get better, but the speed actually got worse for years. And the old UI, the classic UI, is still actually faster than Lightning, but Lightning allows for a much better experience. And they added in-app guidance to walk users through it. They had to create this trailhead system, which is a nice, fun thing to use to guide users, but it's with training. And it leaves room for competitors to come along and do it better. If you look at the rise of HubSpot, their platform is simply easier and they're eating Salesforce's lunch for SMB. So Salesforce predominantly just goes after enterprise customers. But also if you look at a, at a company that's doing 25 billion in revenue, why would they add a SKU that's we're at 8.3 million ARR, right? Let's say we get to 50 million ARR and they, they pick us up then they're going to have to get to at least a billion ARR of our application in order to satisfy their, uh, stakeholders, their right. shareholders, right? So if you look at the companies they bought, Slack has billions of ARR and they bought them because they can scale that to be many more billions. They bought Demandware, they bought MuleSoft. And these are, are multi-billion dollar acquisitions because those are immediately billion dollar SKUs. So if Salesforce goes after something new, it has to have a multi-billion dollar tail behind it. Benioff said 2036, he wants to have 60 billion in revenue. You can't do that by buying a, a company that's like a they they call it like a like a, a tech uh like slot in or or a, a tech uh uptick or something to to be able to just put it into their stack but not necessarily to add the revenue so the companies they've been buying regardless of what the actions have be have have been more around what applications they see can reach billions we mm -hmm. did events because salesforce is doing nothing with events it's really really hard to build almost everything Salesforce has built recently has been really quite easy. The dev efforts have been like six months. We've been building events for three or four years. It's with, with a full team, it's many, many millions of dollars to recreate from scratch. So we had two competitors that weren't focusing on events. We ended up focusing all of our efforts on events. And now we're taking on the competitors that are external to Salesforce. And what we're hearing from our customers is Salesforce bought Demandware, they bought CloudCraze. These apps take and I'm quoting actual numbers I've heard, three to $500,000 just to implement, not the cost of the licensing itself. 
So there's a big space for coming in with something like a Shopify for Salesforce that you can get going quickly with your own store and go after that SMB market that Salesforce just isn't serving. So the idea of our, our company is to, to fill these gaps that Salesforce isn't serving in a way that's fast and super easy to use. So it looks a little haphazard having like events and then messaging and then commerce, but our go-to-market target has been around nonprofits and associations because every single one of them has these exact same needs. So we're catering all of our features there, but our model is not uh, specific to those businesses. Everything is data model agnostic. So at least half of our revenue is not nonprofits and associations. Got it. But nonprofits and associations you went after because they definitely need this and they do have tons of events. Tons of events, and they have the need for all of these functions, but all of these functions are running outside of Salesforce. If you have to train your company to, do, to use five different apps, five different UIs, you have security considerations for five different systems, you have a procurement department for, for five different companies, it's a lot of work. And we didn't actually have a go-to-market thesis to begin. We just knew that events on Salesforce had to get figured out. Same with payments. And we just waited to see what the organic inquiries were. And it was just predominantly nonprofits and events. So we've focused our roadmap there. Got it. So the early adopters for you, right, for Blackthorn seems to be, which you don't like this term, the late adopters of the other. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's true. We we um We've had an early strange mix. One of the earliest adopters for events we had is the Interactive Advertising Bureau, IAB. And they have, um, events is interesting because behind the scenes, it needs to do a lot, but uh, not behind the scenes, whatever the flip side of that is, uh, in front of the scenes, yeah. in front of the camera. <laughs> yeah, It has to have a really easy user experience. So with IAB, who's still a customer, they are very techie. They're writing code, they're doing everything. So we didn't have to focus on the Salesforce side experience with them, but the attendee side experience got massive scrutiny to how we were thinking about it because we didn't do lots of interviews for how people ran events. We just like came up with some thesis and ran with it. And nearly every single initial thing we created a few years ago is gone because all the feedback we had had to get changed because people that are using these registrations online, they're the iPhone app users. So they're the ones that we had this huge feedback from, but then everyone that was using it there, they started to see the app and some of their companies were adopting the app and they're coming off Eventbrite. So those later adopters of those systems are now wanting to come to Salesforce that are, that are working logistics in Excel sheets. If you're an event manager, you're not writing code in your system. You have 800 things to worry about that are managed in Excel sheets or some task system, and you just need to fire up your event and go. So we've had to rethink our strategy. You had to really rethink it around user experience. Yes. What are your biggest challenges that Blackhorn has today? And, you know, with this whole way that you're going and the user experience and events mm -hmm. and payments, what are your biggest challenges? Yeah, the, the biggest one we saw was figuring out how to have an engineering team that would do enhancements for our current customers, but go after areas of the market we knew were huge that needed a new app or a new massive feature. So behind it, it's just a money problem because if you hire more people, it's money. Yeah, you have to find great people and create the processes or whatnot. So we ended up doing some uh, 
personal loans and some uh, debt facilities with CapChase, which if you talk about being a disruptor, CapChase and Pipe.com and FounderPath and ClearBank, these, uh, I don't know if you want to call them financial institutions or funders or what you want to call them, but they created a new style of doing company funding where you're selling your contract. You're not like they don't own the customer, but they're buying the underlying asset, the rights to that contract, and they fund it on day one. So if we have a 10K contract, they'll give us 9K today. We pay 10K over time. So what we did was we got a few million of, it's not the same thing as a credit line, but it's almost the same because you have yeah. your existing credit that they'll give you. You can borrow up to that. So we got a lot of this credit through CapChase, who's been a great partner of ours, combined with two loans. So we didn't have to dilute the cap table at all. I've had something like 20 inquiries from growth VCs that want to write us a $30 million check and take 20 to 25% of the company. Instead, we took on, which is now like 4 million of debt, something like that, in order to build an R&D team where we now have 10 engineers building out these new applications with our product team. And it's interesting because the speed of our sales is such that come about the July period, we're actually going to be net positive of the debt. So we're going to have to figure out what we want to do. If we want to pay it down early, if we want to hire more people, if we want to invest in sales and marketing, we'll have to look at the CAC and time to payback or whatnot. But that's been, I think, the, the biggest problem is figuring out how to enhance what we have while also bringing new things to market. And this time around, we're focusing heavily on the customer experience rather than just the tech behind them. Because now we know the tech behind it and we have the time because we're making revenue, we're making money now to focus on what the experience should be. So the initial releases of these should be far uh, more on the money of what our customers want than in the past. Yeah. Well, that's a good problem to have. Well done to you. Yeah. It's, we've been very lucky with that. Thank and really you. confidence in your uh, product and your ability to ramp up that you, you know, didn't take that infusion of cash and went the way that you did. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. Some of my friends, I've, I've seen them, their, their companies will have valuations of hundreds of millions of dollars, which, you know, at that stage, the, the money is not really that important. It becomes more of like your own mental thing, but they have 10%, 5%, 20%, 15% of the company, the rest of all their efforts going to bankers. And you can make the argument that the money helped you go a lot faster. In some industries, you really need it. Like if you're Uber and you have six competitors coming at you, like you have to raise to go faster. Yeah. If you're Airbnb and you have these competitors, like you have to. We don't have 50 competitors in the Salesforce space because our, our TAM, our total addressable market is not gargantuan, right? There's companies that are built on Salesforce that are able to get really quite big. If you look at Encino or Viva, these companies are built on Salesforce and they've gotten huge. So it's possible but it's not really as common. If you look at companies outside of Salesforce, it's basically all of them on the stock market. And within Salesforce, there's two, three. The bigger ones now are Own Backup or Capato. These have gotten very big valuations, but at the expense of the founders giving up a humongous amount of equity where we don't have to reach the same revenue for myself and all of our team, everybody has stock options to all make minimally the same, if not a lot more money without having to lose control and give up some of the funds. So 
a lot of people said, Chris, why don't you raise? You should raise. You should raise. You never know. You should raise. And, <laughs> and it seems to be the mantra, but it, it's not always the best thing. Because no one wants to read a PR like, oh, Blackburn got a $4 million debt facility. Who cares? They want to see that you raise a $30 million Series B. You're like, oh, that's incredible. What are they doing? Oh, they gave up 25% of the company. But, you know, a lot, all the VCs say, yeah, you should raise because here's why. And we should talk with, they're the ones making the money. So yeah. these companies like CapChase, they're giving away billions. So it's it's not a huge news thing yet, but it will be soon because there's literally billions of dollars being away, given away to SaaS companies now instead of doing this funding. And yeah, you're not going to get $30 million if you're a 10 million company from this. They have to manage their underwriting, but you're going to get millions. So it's it's just different. Yeah. Well, that's another industry, the VC industry that's being heavily disrupted. Oh, it's heavily, right? Yeah. It needs some refinement there. Yeah, you're right. So let's look at the future trends, you know, your prediction, you know, this whole speed as far as main ingredient for disruption, right? User experience, um, enterprise, right? Where do you see this? I mean, there's definitely been a catalyst for it. I think COVID was a huge catalyst for it. There's this pent up Mm -hmm. demand. We've been forced to do things. Now we look at other things like, Hey, this could be better. This could be faster. Right. Where do you see this user experience taking SaaS, taking enterprise in the next three to five years? It's, it's hard for me to put a timeline on it, but, um, I read a lot and follow a lot about Elon Musk and it's, it's, it's interesting what he says, cause he has a developer background. He has a designer background and he says the hardest thing to do is manufacturing. And if you look at, or manufacturing at scale, at least, and if you look at all the companies that just write software and deploy it, they make a lot of money. They grow really fast and they, they, they take something and they make it a little bit better. The reality though, is that if we didn't exist, like if I'd be realistic, if we didn't exist, the world doesn't change, right? You can still host events. You can still do payments. If Shopify didn't exist, there's still ways to put your store online. Now they've helped companies along the way. We've massively helped companies. So, so many of the software companies are out now, they're, they're making incremental improvements and things. It's generating a lot of money for these companies, but it's not really helping the world that much, right? If you look at SpaceX and how they've been able to do space launches at a much lower cost, it's getting access to companies to do things differently. If you look at Tesla, they've created a revolution to to force the, the migration away from burning oil by all these companies who weren't going to do that. These types of changes, they're only really possible when you have manufacturing change. If you look at Helion, and the investment from Sam Altman of 700 million of his own money into going after nuclear power plants, that has to be one of the most unsexy things for a VC to put their money in. <laughs> it is so risky. You're not, you're not turning around your money from this. It's a moonshot. It's really hard to do. So there's these layups of writing software because writing software compared to doing a manufacturing is really hard. If we deploy a bug, or we have a massive run of 10 million units of something, what are we gonna do another 10 million run because we had a bug? So 
as much as I respect everyone that's doing these software problems and the, the peers in my space, they're all writing software. It's incredible. I have a lot of respect. There's a lot of money that's being given away. It's awesome. But what I hope to see is, and once we exit, what I hope to do is to do something with a, a physical device, because these things really help, uh, is to, to try to go in that direction. And I know that your question was about what do I see in enterprise SaaS in three to five years is that I actually hope to not see more enterprise SaaS companies. I hope to see more physical product companies coming out because there's enough enterprise SaaS companies. Okay. That is extremely controversial. I love that. <laughs> you know, the SaaS enterprise SaaS companies in the SaaS market is just, you know, exploding, right? But it's now exploding. you're There's it's so exploding, many. right? But now you're talking about the actual products, right? That they need to be better. Yeah, they have to. And you couldn't have these machines without the software in the past. So you had to have, it's like you couldn't have bad air unless you had coal power plants to start with. Like you had to have the industrial revolution. In order to make these machines, you had to do the software. But we have, we have enough software, right? The, one of the problems with, with Tesla is that they now have five or six layers of neural nets to figure out the AI behind the machine. Like now the software has to get paired with the machine. You can't have something like Neuralink exist unless you have the, the, the software behind controlling this thing. So now that we have enough software, like put it to use. Don't just like be a money factory, which is awesome by itself. It hasn't made me happy. It's great not having a company running out of money, which was an old case, which really was terrible. But being able to do something with physical goods is, I don't know if I'll ever get there. I hope so, but I, I hope to see more companies doing it. Next lifetime. No, but seriously, I mean, isn't everything cyclical? I mean, you're talking about the age of the machine coming back, right? It has to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned... Well, I know this from talking to you before. I mean, you are a fanatic about user experience. And I think that even leads you to your prediction of this, you know, the machines have got to get better. The physical product has got to get better, right? Mm -hmm. The microwave well, hasn't changed since it was invented. I know, I know. I know. And we hate microwaves, we still and, use them. <laughs> yeah, we still use it. Like why, why did the edges get crispy? Why do things still explode? Like why, why can't it target where it's cold and the other part of it is hot? Like it, why can't it do this? I know. I agree with you. I didn't think about that before. Right. At Lots some point, there's going to be a pent up demand fixed. for microwaves. <laughs> yeah. Every, everyone's like, oh, my software is on the left side instead of the right side. I'm going to make a new one. Oh, now it's a 10 billion company. And I, I, I know I'm, I'm being cynical about it. I know it's my industry. Uh, but the reality is like, it's really hard to do those things. You can't start those companies without massive funding. That's where VC has to exist. You can't make money before you have a product. It, it has a real use case there. Someone's taking a massive, massive risk. They deserve 20% of the company if they're giving someone $10 million that they might lose, right? That's, that's a big need. But it's really hard to do that. And I think because the problem is so hard, people just aren't going after it yet. Yeah, I agree with you. So you do have a very philosophical approach to things that you look at. You, you really do. What, what were you like as little Chris? And you said you've had to really kind of scale it back with your, you know, relationships and stuff, always looking to streamline and so forth. But were, were you always like looking at things like between the lines and, you know, how did you get on this path? 
Uh, I, I had a very depressing childhood. My, my, my parents fought a lot. They, they're, my mom was very critical. My dad was physically abusive. It, it caused me to like sit by myself. And I, seventh grade, eighth grade, I just sat on my computer, changed my operating system once a week. Uh, I was always taking over two phone lines so I can run 56K modem. I was on internet relay chat, figuring out how to write uh, Perl and CGI scripts. I, I was always just interested in uh, things I could do on my own. And uh, then, then speeding up, uh, figuring out that I had bipolar two, it, it kind of led me to uh, really wanting to spend a lot of time on my own. It was very hard for me to interact with people for a long time until I did a lot of therapy and got medication, which I think forced me to um, not want to have a boss. Uh, our CEO, CRO Stuart yesterday, uh, no, two nights ago, said that I'm unemployable. Uh, it's, <laughs> but uh, people at our company have been there a long time. So I, I, don't, I don't think I'm the worst boss, but in terms of like, uh, working somewhere, I think it's a bit difficult for me because I, a lot of the ways that, that companies have traditionally operated, I just, I haven't really liked it. So forever, I wanted to just have my own thing. And I, and I think the way that so many things have always happened, I've disagreed with them. And it's caused me to get into arguments with my bosses or owners of companies because they weren't as fast moving or flexible or the egos were too big and they wanted to just stay how it was. And Somewhere along there, I started to read about other stuff. Like now I'm reading about structures. It's this old book from 1978 by, oh God, I'm so bad at remembering authors' names, but the book is fantastic. It talks about the, the structures of worms and how a worm creates friction in the dirt and how a, a bird can't pull it out of the dirt. And then it goes into talking about airplane uh, connections with rivets. And I just... I find it interesting. Patrick Collison writes a lot about how to move faster. And he reads about how, um, if you look at city planning, it's user experience. How, how do you plan a city in a way that there's a, there's a park? Do you have a park? Because it cuts down on your revenue. Or does it build it up over time because people want to live there? And it, it's, it's gaining this exposure through therapy and strange reading that I think is sort of forced me to think of this a little bit differently. I've had 15 offers to buy the company now. And I, I consistently tell people that it's not about the money to me. People think I'm nuts. I, I, think, it's, I think it's more interesting to be able to uh, create a user experience that, I, uh, that I'm happy with. I'm happy with the company because we're making money. It feels successful, but I'm, I'm still not happy with our apps. They're very fast to get going. They do a lot of stuff, but... Um, the older MacBook Pros that, that had the, the touch bar, it was so terrible. The keyboard was terrible. And the new MacBook Pro is incredible. Like to, to make a, a change like that, to, it's not a huge change. Like if we come out with this change and, the, and all of a sudden our apps feel incredible, I just think that that's something to feel good about. Like it, yeah. I, I recently sold a, a very small bit of equity because I had 30k in the bank before and I'm 40 after doing this starting a company work for eight years with another company before it and I didn't have much to show for it and I got this money and I got depressed afterwards and I realized like all the stuff I ever wanted did nothing it did absolutely nothing and it 
it really helped me refocus um, what it is that I think is important. And I told everybody in the company, I think we can get a 500 million exit starting in 2025. But I said the real goal behind us is um, we just have to make the users, the, the, the applications better. We have to make our users happy. So here's what we're going to focus on. We're building is two new things this year. Then the rest of this year and all of next year, we're building nothing new, absolutely nothing. All we're going to do is perfect what we have. And if you, if you look at what Tim Cook has done, he's done nothing since Steve Jobs has, has you know, left us. He made an AirPod, right? AirPods happen to be a multi-billion dollar a year revenue line, but he's had the money. If you have a $250 billion war chest, you, you could have funded three SpaceX's. I've heard people half say that before about him. Yes. Yeah. So he, he's, a, he's a tremendous operator, but he creates nothing new. If you look at, yeah. uh, if you look at Balmer compared to what Satya Nadella has done, Nadella's created incredible innovations in a quarter or a third of the time that Balmer is able to make tons of money, but almost made Microsoft go extinct from, from not creating anything. So I think there's just a lot more enjoyment in, in the creation of something rather than the, the purpose of building up money. It's, I don't know. And I, I want well, to start it's definitely a, a higher motivation. Purpose a, I think it and is. duty is a higher motivation than money. It seems like yeah. you have taken experiences in your life and overcome them with creation for yourself. And that seems to be the driving force for you and what you're doing. Yeah. I think creating stuff is more interesting. I, I want to start a nonprofit with a lot of the money from an eventual exit, but I think, I personally think it's more out of my own guilt than me actually wanting to do it. Like, I feel like I, I owe it back to people who, who really need it yeah. or to causes. Like we donate a lot of our company money to Stripe Climate and to some other purposes like watsi.org. But I, there's some enjoyment from it, but I think I really enjoy creating products more. So I, I'll do something there, but I think more because I feel like I need to, not because I think I'll really enjoy it. Yeah. Well, you're like, you're definitely an innovator with a passion to do good and do better. What do you do? What do you Thanks. do outside of work? Do you have any crazy passions or is your passion um, like reading these obscure, you know, abstracts, you know, by the way, before you answer that question on a tangent, <laughs> I know you like Elon Musk, Yeah, but I remember watching a documentary about him and I think he was picked on a lot when he was younger and he just read, mm -hmm. he read and read and read and read, read a lot of books. So we were talking mm -hmm. about the friction of worms and it's hard, hard for birds to pull them out of the ground. And I'm thinking he likes Elon Musk. You definitely have that in common, but what yeah, are your crazy I mean, passions? Elon is, is I love what he does, but I'm, I'm not quite like him. I'm like, I'm, I'm not as good as math. Like math. I'm not as good as, as retaining information he has. I have no desire to work the hours that he does. I, I, I don't mirror what he's doing, but I, I think I, I just have tremendous respect for the things he's done and some of the concepts. Um, I'm, I did a half Ironman last year. I'm training for another half Ironman that's gonna be in June. Uh, I'm a cyclist at heart. Uh, so I love going riding. I do a lot of Zwift, which is like this virtual, everybody does Peloton, but Zwift, came out kind of earlier and is more for people who are like kind of serious into biking Zwift or Peloton is more for the user experience. Yeah. Zwift is more for people that want to ride there. Well, they're having trouble bikes. right now. Peloton is. They are having trouble. I mean, you, you can't sell bikes unlimitedly. 
Like there's, there's only so many people that, that want to, to buy a $2,000 bike, whatever the thing costs. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, when I, did you get I into, that. when did you get into cycling and competing like that? Uh, I got into riding in early college. I helped start this George Washington university, uh, cycling team thing. I don't know, but that's cool. These days I, I spend a lot more time with my girlfriend. I found it's important to, you know, if you actually want to have a relationship that works, you actually have to, you know, spend the time there, but I also actually enjoy it. So good for you. <laughs> that's been a nice change. Yeah. The, the find a good fit for me. So that that's been good. That's awesome. So how do people get a hold of you? How do they get a hold of Blackthorn? How do they get a hold of you personally if they want to reach out? Sure. Yeah, just email me. It's just Chris at blackthorn.io. Uh, I get a lot of emails. I'm pretty fast at going through them. Uh, I use Superhuman. Relavora made an incredible app. Uh, but again, you know, another innovation. Gmail worked fine. And then Superhuman <laughs> came out. <laughs> he made it faster. He literally focuses on speed. That's all he does. Uh, so yeah, just email me. It's chris at blackthorn.io. And, you know, I have a Google doc I can share about, I get a lot of random questions that tend to follow the same grouping. So I can share those or I can hop on like a Zoom chat to answer stuff. Or I'm happy to help people start companies that are earlier than ours, you know, early founders. There's a lot of things we've done wrong that I can chime in with. So that's yeah. great, Chris. You know what? I see speed throughout all of your endeavors. <laughs> it's important. We, we all die. Why not have it? Yeah. Why not? Right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. So you guys know where to get a hold of Chris after this show. And that's a wrap, everyone. If you learned something cool. today, tell someone about this podcast. Go tell people to disrupt their markets and give them a tidbit from the show. Thank you for listening to Disruption Interruption, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Because we live in a highly litigious society with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal, healthcare, or financial advice or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal situation or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links do not create an agency-client relationship between Joto PR and the user.